I certainly still have my own shame. The difference is it doesn't have me. And that's a huge distinction. We have this expectation that if I take these right steps, if I do this program, if I drink this weight loss shake, if I whatever do this retreat or work with this shaman, I'm going to be free of my shame. No, let's be in relationship with your shame. Let's have a conversation with it. Let's invite it over for dinner. Let's figure out how to be friends with this thing because trying to amputate it is certainly not going to be effective, but it's here. It's here. How are we going to work with it? How are we going to include it? And I think you know what I see a lot with clients over time is that their conversation with the shame shifts from something that they, they absolutely can't be with and have to avoid to something that they recognize is here, is temporary, and is going to shift out of first position into something else and, and won't be in front of their face permanently. But the relationship to impermanence has become, has become really lost. And that's a, a big part of my work with my clients is to reintroduce them to that idea. Feelings are temporary. Your lifelong passions, dreams, and aspirations. Your joys and creative spurs. Your femininity. Your success. All in one place. This is Girl Skill with your host, Anna Rova. Hi, girlfriends. Before you listen to this episode on Girl Skill Podcast, I quickly want to jump in and make you a personal recommendation for the goddess kit that comes from Rosie Ruiz, founder of Yoni Pleasure Palace and Naked Yoga, who's also been my guest on episode 31, which has been one of the top ever downloaded episodes on this podcast. So the goddess kit is actually a jade yoni egg and a rose quartz pleasure wand that comes in a beautiful black box with pouches for safekeeping. And it's really a self-pleasure, a self-care practice. So the Yoni egg, you can think about it as weight for Kegel exercises. And what it does is it has amazing benefits to it. It strengthens your pelvic floor, which helps a lot with weak bladder. It prevents prolapse. It rehabilitates the pelvic floor after childbirth, which is like my case. And since I've been using it, in fact, you know, after I interviewed Rosie, I said, you need to get this for me, for my husband. And so he bought it for me and I've been using it. And I have seen quite a few amazing results. And since then, I also have gifted it to my girlfriend friends. So besides all of these benefits, you'll also become more sensitive rather than numb to pleasure, switching on the vaginal nerve endings to be more receptive to internal orgasms. And it also helps with the lubrication, which particularly can occur for women who have hit menopause. So it's basically for all women, young or old, and think about it as a crossfit for your vagina. Another thing that's included in the goddess kit is the pleasure wand. And the pleasure wand is really a self-pleasure practice rather than, you know, using all these rubber and silicone vibrators to just get it off and it becomes a deeply nourishing practice you can put it under warm water use your favorite lubricant and it can enhance your internal orgasms so girlfriends i highly recommend you check it out go to girlskill.com pleasure and you'll read more about the whole kit and rosie has been very generous to offer a 15 percent discount for the pleasure kit but also you can use it in in her whole store so use girlskill at checkout called girlskill at check out and again go to girlskill.com slash pleasure to find out more about it and now let's jump into this episode Hi, girlfriends. Today, I'm very excited to bring you an episode with Molly Burney, who is a clinical coach and deals with addiction recovery and eating disorders and a bunch of other things that I don't really understand. But anyways, we had an amazing conversation, just finished recording the interview. And before I let you listen to this, let me tell you about Molly. She comes by her specialization in eating disorder recovery 
having battled with her own kick-ass bulimia for years, which he, she has been recovered from 2007. And as she mentions in the podcast, her husband is a previous heroin addict as well and is a therapist now too. So it's an amazing couple, an amazing body of work that she's doing. So Molly holds a master's degree in clinical psychology with a specialization in addiction and eating disorders and a bachelor's from Tufts University. She's completed her certification coursework in intuitive eating, uh, the modality she employs most with clients. Her treatment-oriented and therapeutic experience includes work with the Multi-Service Eating Disorder Association in, in Boston, primary therapist group facilitator positions at both. There's a treatment center, Breathe Life Healing Center, Binge Eating Disorder Program in LA. She's also coaching with Joe Emile support and she's speaking at conferences and has multiple clients in LA. And I can see why her work is so invaluable because we talk about many different things in the podcast. <laughs> we start with, you know... Um, her biggest fears and a bunch of like, what is her wildest thing she's done, which was amazing. But we also talk about, you know, some really interesting things. Like she talks about her femininity and stepping into femininity after uh, doing a couple of years in boxing, actually fighting and all of that. And now she's trying to conceive and, and she talks beautifully about her experience into stepping onto this femininity and womanhood journey. We talked about, you know, mental health. And I love how she said, oh yeah, if you're not dealing with a mental health issue in 2019, that means you're successful. So we talk about where does this epidemic come from? What is the reason for people basically being depressed and having a lot of anxiety issues and all of that? Obviously, social media is one of the biggest, biggest factors. And we talk a lot about shame and where does it come from and why so many people are dealing with it and what's the difference between guilt, you know, and shame in itself. Where does it come from and how to deal with it? She also takes me through uh, a really interesting process uh, where I said, okay, I have this eating disorder. Well, not eating disorder. I'm actually not sure how to call this, but cravings and addictions to chocolate and sugar that causes my acne problem. And so she takes me through really a counseling or a coaching session, which was very, very powerful and had some pretty amazing aha moments there. And uh, she summarizes. So if you're someone dealing with an addiction or an eating disorder or disordered eating, there is a difference, then definitely stay until the end where she summarizes it and uh, hopefully gives gives you a couple of tips on how to get over it. Actually, not get over it, but create a relationship with it and uh, stay until the, ends because, until the end because she's going to recommend some amazing people who are doing some great work in this field of eating disorder, addiction, all of that. And also I recommend some really good poetry for all of us and some uh, awesome books to stay inspired and illuminated on the way. All right, enjoy this episode and I'll see you at the end. Girl Skill, female success redefined. All right, Girl Skill listeners, today we have all the way from LA, Molly Burney. Hi, Molly. Welcome to Girl Skill. Hi, Anna. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. It's a really funny story how we connected because you told me that one of your clients actually has recommended that you listen to the podcast and maybe even contact me to be a guest. And here we are. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Thank you. Yeah, love it. And, uh, you know, if, if you're the client who told Molly about this podcast, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I highly uh, encourage you to contact me and message me personally and tell me your story and, you know, the episodes you're listening to. And Oh, I second that. Yes. Yeah. On that note, thanks everyone for being here. We're just talking with Molly. You know, it's a Friday morning, 7 a.m. for me in Australia. It's 1 p.m. the previous day for Molly in LA. And, you know, we're just recording this, but we know that uh, hundreds of you will be listening to it. Hopefully thousands one day, you know, you never know. 
But yeah, one day. All right, Molly, let's uh, jump straight in. Tell me, what is your superpower? Oh my God. I, this is, this is going to get serious real fast. Ready? I really think that one of my superpowers is being really comfortable with other people's shame. And that allows me to go into some pretty dark places with, um, with my clients and, and also with, uh, with friends and family and people I love and people who are, who are really working through stuff that there is, there is no dark corner that I have not either sat in myself or leaned towards or, or had conversations around that I, I, I really have a lot, of, a lot of space for the darkness that's in us. And um, I, I, that, that certainly was not something I thought was an asset until you know, really in these last six years of my life or so, because I, I think it's, it's something we spend a lot of time running from. But having leaned into it, I, I do see it as a superpower now. Yeah, absolutely. And tell me, how do you do that? Because I'll, I'll share with you my experience. A lot of times, like, so before I went into, you know, becoming a coach and getting my certification, one of the hardest things for me was to be with people who just either break down in front of me or, you know, go to some really dark places. And I never thought I could be a coach because I just couldn't handle it. You know, it was too much. And then obviously I broke through my own barriers, blah, blah. But I'm curious for you, how are you able to do that? Because it's pretty hard to be in that space, but also just hold space and not comfort or, you know, not go in there, run after, you know, the tears and... Sure, sure. It's an incredibly complicated and nuanced practice. And I... I and at the same time, it's also quite simple. That it, it, it's really a matter of of, um, of compassion. First of all, this is the first piece, but that kind of goes without saying. I think the other piece is really respecting this process and knowing that there is nothing that you know that that we as coaches we are not capable of rescuing. We are not the cavalry that is coming to rescue anyone, but we are here to to say, look, I, I know where your coordinates are in that map. I know what the landscape is like in where you're standing. And I can tell you what the journey looks like to get out. But I, I think I think a lot of uh, a lot of people come at this from from this perspective of uh, no, we're supposed to we're supposed to rescue, we're supposed to comfort, we're supposed to dry tears. But I, I know that this is both from experience professionally and personally, there is nothing that that I can do or say single-handedly to to cure shame or to uh, to to amputate whatever the suffering is. That is that's your work to be doing, and my work is to witness it. That uh, that's so so much of this work is that that healing happens not just because there's work being done internally, but often because there's a witness to that work. And my job as a witness is not to rob you of the experience of crying, but to see you through and and help you experience what that process is like. Yeah, that's right. Wow, this started really serious, really fast, Molly. I'm and so sorry. <laughs> 7 a.m. in the morning. I'm like, oh God, we already started talking about this serious stuff. Look, so it's, it's 1 p.m. Thursday it. here, so it's... Uh, no, yeah, no I'm, worries. I mean, like, I love this stuff. We're going to get into the meat of it, but but I'm like... Oh. I, I promise I have a sense of humor too. It's uh, Okay, <laughs> let, let's see that. All right, let's talk about something light a little bit. What is the best gift that you've ever received? Gosh, the best gift I've ever received. My mom... Um, recently bought me oven mitts that I've, I've been just using the crappiest dish towels for years and years and years. And my husband and I will frequently burn our hands and or we're grabbing like a, a blanket from the other room. I don't know. It, we're resourceful people, but it, for whatever reason, it's, it's the one thing that we have not managed to get in our house is oven mitts. And you know, we've lived together a long time. We have no excuse for not having oven mitts, but she recently got us um, some, some very classy adult oven mitts, which we're uh, proud to no longer be using bed sheets to get shit out of the kitchen, uh, out of the oven. 
I, I just swore. I apologize. I love it because I'm the same. I have a bunch of towels and, you know, often when we leave a pretty, like my husband's always telling me, do not buy more stuff because we have, we have enough stuff. And so the oven mitts would be in the category of things that would be stuff that nobody needs, but then you really need them, right? No, I, I, well, and, and what's dumb is that I've needed them for a long time and I'm not someone who likes to to suffer. If I need something, I'm going to get it. But for whatever reason, this is one thing that just escaped me for too long. So mom, thank you for the oven mitts. Thank you, mom. Yeah. Moms give the best gifts and uh, grandmothers and mothers-in-law as well. All right. Awesome. Well, let's flip the coin and tell me what is the best gift that you've ever given? Oh man, this is not particularly clever, but I wrote my boyfriend at the time, now husband, a really, really kick-ass poem. Uh, a little bit, a little bit grandiose, perhaps. Um, but this was this was for, gosh, it was either for his birthday or an anniversary or something. But I, I just broke myself down and poured it in. I think I, it, the grandiosity is like I think I even quoted the Bible or something in it. And by you know, kick ass, I don't mean by anyone else's standard other than the man who loves me very much. He thought it was kick ass, and I'll take that. But uh, I think that's probably that's probably the best gift I've ever given that I can yeah. come up with right now. <laughs> that is pretty nice. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. What is your favorite type of music? I, I love Paul Simon. I grew up on Paul Simon. Um, so I, I, I think he's just a phenomenal songwriter and storyteller. That's, my, that's the answer that I like to go to that makes me sound good. In reality, I love some really crappy honky-tonk country. I can really get down. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. Awesome. I don't even know who Paul Simon is, but I'm going to Google him, check him out and have a link in the show notes as well. So (laughs) that's great. I'm always discovering new things from my guests. So that's great. All right. Who is one person dead or alive that you'd love to have dinner with? Oh, Eddie Izzard. He's a a comedian and and now um, somewhat social activist and just phenomenally sharp. I've never heard wit like that before. And um, I guess he's, he's a little bit underrated. He's not commonly known of, but... Mm-hmm. How do you spell his last name? I-Z-Z-A-R-D, Izzard. Ah, okay. Awesome. Another name that I need to check out and maybe watch a couple of uh, comedy shows. Me and my husband will love, well, he loves just watching comedy all the time because I guess oh, he's the end of the day, so... Yeah, he's he's incredible. He brings in uh, really a, a perspective on history from a comedic standpoint that I've never heard. And uh, out of context here, but he would describe himself as an executive transvestite. So just read into that what you will. All right. I'll check him out. I'll, I encourage listeners to do that as well. All right. Moving on. Uh, what was the wildest thing you've ever done? Oh, come on now. How exactly how... Uh, <laughs> Wildly are we thinking here? I once decided when I was uh, I was studying abroad in London, and that I needed to get down to uh, Portugal to meet some friends. So I, I got down to Portugal, then to discover that for whatever reason I was stuck there. This is this is not a stellar story here, but suffice to say that I managed to then hitchhike my way uh, from uh, down in Portugal up to. Paris, uh, and it was a, a journey full of very questionable choices and bizarre characters and uh, things like that. Certainly not something my parents would have been thrilled had they known about it at the time. That's pretty wild, you know. That takes some balls and cards to do that. That's you awesome. Know, it's, it's a really fine line between like uh, risk and just stupid. <laughs> so I think I was. 19 at the time. <laughs> Love this story. Awesome. All right. A bit of a serious question. What does your unguarded heart yearn for? 
just relief, all forms of relief, relief and softness, uh, really, really softening the process of softening that my, my guarded heart is all about the presentation and, and presenting with acuity and intelligence. And my unguarded heart just wants relief from that. It wants to be quiet and I think it wants to be soft. And I love how you just went straight into it. You know, tone of voice changed and uh, it became quiet and so beautiful. What is your biggest fear? Gosh, on instinct, almost from muscle memory, I wanted to say being alone, but I, I, I don't know that that's, I don't know that that's true anymore. I think, I think it would be just dealing with loss. And of course, that's, that's part of what we sign up for in being on the planet is being in relationship with loss, both of uh, parts of ourselves and things and loved ones. So uh, yeah, there's loss in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I'm dealing with that. Uh, well, for me, the biggest fear is loss of my loved ones. And it's really weird and interesting the last kind of three months once I had my baby, because my baby's like three and a half months. And I've never experienced feeling the fear of loss of a child. You know, this is something obviously very specific when you become a parent, but now it's been okay. Like I know she's not going to die like at this moment right now, but knowing that it might happen, you, you know, I, I went into this panic mode for about a week or two where I was checking her out constantly and just imagining thinking, what if something happens to her? Like I won't be able to survive. And same thing with the husband. I know I will like, you know, but that feeling was so interesting and so bizarre of something that I've never, never experienced before. That's fascinating. You know, my, my husband and I are in the process of trying to get pregnant. Um, who knew it was such a process? I mean, everyone knew it was such a process, right? But, uh, but I didn't. I was out of that loop. But that, that it's something I've certainly been considering, especially given you know, fear of loss, that you're, you're upping the ante on that. You're, you're increasing your, your surface area, which increases your risk for loss. Um, by, by, let me, let's add something else that you care about here and risk losing it. Um, but that's certainly on my radar is some work I'm going to have to do and, and be able to include that if, if we're able to get pregnant. Absolutely. Well, good, good luck with that. Thank you. Yeah. And it's crazy how, you know, that the best, but then you think of the flip side and what you get in like in, instead, not instead, but what you get and, and the fear of losing that is, is always, you know, the more you feel. So I guess that the bigger the relationship or the more the reward or not, I don't want to call it reward, but you know what I mean? Like having no, that's, a child. That's a, fair, that's a fair analysis. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's such a gift. But then with that gift, same, same, same thing with the relationship and marriage. Like my, I know my partner and, and me, like we're not permanent. Thinking of my, about my own death is a completely different journey. Like that's crazy in itself. When I think about this, that like, I'm not going to exist at one point in time, like this is happening. It's just mm-hmm. a matter of time. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> makes me like, oh, so not anxious, but just thinking about this, this is just the craziest thing ever. No, it's, it's interesting that you're, that you're saying that. That's, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm 34 years old, which is not, not 24 years old. And, um, you know, I, I realized that a lot of people would say that this is young and I'm sure it is in, in, in some contexts. Um, but to me, I'm, and my, you know, my, my dad has Alzheimer's and he's in, um, the, the, just in the process, man. And, and really considering, oh, we are in the passage of time. This is what the passage of time looks like. It really brings up that question of how, how do we engage with loss? And if I'm playing to win, does that mean I expand my risk to loss by loving people or to lose by loving more people? by creating someone to love? And I think the answer to that is yes, but you know, it doesn't mean we're not terrified of the process. Yeah, that's right. It's, it, 
the answer is yeah, it's 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 absolutely worth it and you do it because you want to feel love. But then yeah, you you have to accept the responsibility and the possibility of grief and loss and all of that. You know, the whole spectrum of human emotion, which we're gonna get to uh probably very soon when once we start talking about your work. But I have two more questions for you that I ask all women on the show. And I think you know what's coming. So uh Molly, what is femininity for you? Oh, for me specifically. It really is my relationship to softness. I kind of touched on this earlier. Is that I I have an image that that almost wants to reject my femininity because I was raised in a household in which that was considered weak or indulgent or vain, and so I developed a kind of survival system that was about rejecting that. And I I find that these days it's really about breaking that down. So my femininity for me is taking a look at my relationship to softness, both in terms of like my, my body, in my tone of voice, in my intensity, in, in the way I, I approach everything. You know, I, am, I, am I doing this with, uh, from a place of intensity and anxiety and drive that is organic? Or is that manufactured in a, as a method of kind of rejecting my inherent softness? So that, that's certainly not the definition for everyone, but that's where I'm at with it today. Mm. And tell me a little bit about this, uh, because, you know, my work is all about that. So I'm like, sure. Yeah. And I decided at one point, well, many months ago that I'm going to talk to women who are really on this journey. Like I'm done talking to women who don't like, I mean, you know, every woman has her own journey, but I'm really looking forward and I want to guests who have, have stepped onto it and have understood, you know, that there is power in here, as you say. And then, you know, my mission today is like, as you said, so many of us are or have been walking through life, rejecting their softness, rejecting their faith, thinking that it's weakness, where in fact, when you really explore and discover, you understand that the power is in that. So tell me a little bit about like, what, what do you see once you've stepped on this journey of softness, as you're describing it, what are some of the like ripple effects that you've noticed in your life and in your work, and how is that working for you rather than against you? Sure, sure. Well, I, and I, I don't know how much we're actually going to get to in the podcast, but I, I, you know, one of the things that has shown up certainly within the last five years was um, that I, I had done uh, competitive boxing for for a while and. Um, I really trained heavily. I trained with a, a, a fight team and uh, was doing tournaments and things like that. And when my husband and I started talking seriously about having a baby, all of that had to stop. And in that process of stopping, I really had to come face to face with this this identity piece. This sort of it, it wasn't about my about embracing my masculinity. It was a direct rejection of my femininity. So I, in order to like, I I don't get to engage in this process of motherhood and seeking motherhood if I'm going to continue to reject that. So just practically speaking, in terms of leaning into softness, I had to stop training and not just not just training with boxing. Um, I discovered I had to stop lifting. I had to stop doing intensive stuff in general. That the, and this may this is probably more information than you ever needed, but I discovered uh, you know, one of the things when we started trying to get pregnant, I had uh, gone off the pill uh, my birth control pill, and discovered, oh, I, with all of this intensive training, I managed to give my body the signal that it wasn't safe to have a natural cycle. And it, it meaning that my uh, my brain just was not sending the uh, the signals to have a normal menstrual cycle. And that, that was such a literal example of me in the process of suppressing all of this stuff and controlling it and managing it and considering it 
yeah, not, not an organic part of me. So this has really been a journey of embracing that, of slowing myself down and allowing myself to see what that looks like literally, physically, and psycho-emotionally. What I find is I have a little bit more, it's changed my work with my clients that there's, I'm told, <laughs> a little bit more gentleness in my approach. That they're ten, and I'm someone who's kind of naturally directive, so it, it, it's not as though I need you know, more uh, energy behind that. Um, you know, and that just because I'm leaning into softness, I, I'm not going to lose that directiveness. But um, I, I had to learn that. My fear was that in leaning into that softness, I would lose that edge. And in fact, that's not what's happening at all. It's it's really transforming that edge into something that has a whole lot more um, dimension and nuance. Mm. Oh my God, love it. Thanks for sharing the story. You know, I, I have a I have a training webinar, which is free for everybody to sign up. It's called The Lie of Female Success. And in, in one of like one little part of that is where I talk about the modern female epidemic that in the quest and the, you know, the fight or whatever we're doing now, uh, you know, all the women who are <laughs> succeeding and pushing and pushing and pushing. And in that quest, we are pretty much, well, as you mentioned, re- rejecting our own femininity, our own female bodies. And so many women, you know, a lot of us hear now about infertility issues, you know, it's all over the place. And you think that I've been talking to another girlfriend of mine and she's like, well, everybody's dealing with that. And I'm like, you know what? Not really. I mean, yeah, I know you're, no. but you're right. <laughs> yeah. Women are, I mean, the, the, the issue has become, it, it feels like, oh my God, women are infertile. What the hell's going on? You know, and personally through my work and research, it's like, well, yeah. I mean, if women are in the masculine energy most of the time, being on the pill, rejecting their femininity in terms of, you know, even even like you mentioned the cycle, everything changed for me when I started tracking my cycle. I actually like, I don't know if you're with the moon, know about this, the sinking with the moon, but I really went deep down into this rabbit hole of like, oh, wow, that's so know? cool. Yeah, like sinking with the cycles and accepting my own body, make, creating a relationship with my womb, with my heart space and all of this. And you know what? Well, I was doing my training about rediscovering your success and who you are as a woman and all of that. By the end of the program, it was my sixth week. I was with seven women. We're in this like journey together. And that was the week where I announced my pregnancy. So in the meantime, oh my goodness. when I was working with them and for the last two years, actually, you know, I was, I was on the same path as you, Molly, in terms of who am I as a woman? Let me, you know, I read a lot of books, did a lot of rituals and all of that. And I, and I really think that that has contributed to me getting pregnant. <laughs> you, Absolutely. You, know? yeah. you, you created fertile ground psycho-emotionally and literally. Yeah, exactly. Because if you are trying, again, trying to get pregnant and pushing for it, I mean, pregnancy is a miracle in itself, you know, trying and pushing, pushing is not, I feel like not the right way to go about this. So you're stepping into your softness and your femininity. I feel like it's a faster way to get to where you need to go in a much more gentle way, as you mentioned. So yeah, I, I think so too. I certainly, I certainly have uh, miles to go before I sleep in terms of this. Going, I mean, I'm still approaching pregnancy from a kind of like I inspire, I inspire, build an empire, let's get pregnant, and having to turn down the volume on that is is slow and scary. You know, the fear that we're taught is that if we if we really lean into that softness, we're going to be passive. We're going to miss our opportunity. We're going to miss, and that, that's not just pregnancy, that's everything. And forgive me, here I am preaching about things you, you already know, but I, 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 think, it's, I think it's valuable. I, I, love that, I love that you had that experience and I really needed to hear that 
from you. I needed that reminder. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And it's a beautiful place to be. And it's scary, as you said, because, and especially today, like no, everybody's just telling you to do the opposite thing. Go, 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 you know, while be, being in the flow is what we need as, as, as creatures in a female body. Anyways, we can talk about this forever, Molly. <laughs> My favorite subject. Um, let's let's move on. So before you tell us, you introduce yourself and tell us. Oh, you're going to talk about my favorite subject, me. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> tell us. Uh, do you consider yourself successful, and why? Oh boy, I, th- I think in in 2019, if you can if you can be self supporting and and not in a deep depression, I do think that is that constitutes success, and and that's a pretty low bar. But I think that's because there's so much. People are are so hard on themselves, and and uh, that depression and mental illness is so rampant in general. So yes, by that low bar, I would say yes. I feel like I'm a success. And also, if I look at this at a little bit of a, a higher standard here, you know, I'm I'm doing my dream job, and I can't ask for much more than that. Mm, amazing. I fi- okay. Let's jump. Okay. So, so tell us. I'll I'll ask you about this this point of depression. You're right. It's like in 2019. If you're mentally healthy and uh, you're doing what you like and you're not dealing with some sort of anxiety, depression, so on and so on, you are successful. <laughs> you know. I really think so. I really think so. Yeah. Well, we'll dive straight into that. Back into that in a second. But everybody's like, hey, who is this woman, Molly? Who is this? Oh, mentor? right. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Tell us. Tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, so I, I, what I do, I'm, a, I'm technically a life coach. What I do is clinical coaching and that's, that's life coaching with an eye towards mental health. I have a, a pretty extensive background in working with eating disorders and various addictions. Um, my, my background is uh, personally in recovery from um, some really ass-kicking bulimia, but life coaching has a pretty wide range of things. And so we're dealing with everything from relationship patterns to communication patterns to um, how one understands one own thought, one's own thoughts and, um, and things like that. That's who I am. Mm. Awesome. Okay. So let's talk about this. Why are you saying that if you're not in 2019, if you're not depressed or have some mental health issue, then you are successful? Why is that? And what are the reasons behind whatever the hell is going on today? Oh, well, I, 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 this is all just one, one woman's opinion here. Um, and certainly I, I, I could never have enough information to diagnose all of humanity. But I, I will go right out and say that I think social media is a huge culprit here for um, our capacity for expectation and thus disappointment. Our ability to really curate someone's experience of us in, uh, in a way that can be ultimately quite damaging and to really inflame our natural instinct to compare, which never comes out particularly well. It's <laughs> rare that we compare ourselves to others and, you know, and, and actually are better for it, even if we think we, we're you know, we can claim ah, I'm better than her because I, whatever, my hair is better. Still, that activates a part of ourselves that's not particularly healthy. So there, there's no element of, um, of comparison there that, that I think is actually truly healthy and helpful for us. Um, but I, I really think that's, that's the major cause for, um, for the degree of depression that we see, especially in, um, in youth today. And um, if we look at something like suicide rates, it's, it's just an epidemic. It's absolutely a heartbreaking epidemic. Um, so I, 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 would, I would claim that's about social media. Hmm. What scale are we really talking at if we look at, so are you saying that like majority of people today are dealing with a, some mental health issue? And, and so expand a little bit more on that, like why is this an epidemic and, and yeah, like what, what's going on in the world today? Sure. I, you know, I, I would go so far as to say that 
most people are dealing with some version of a mental health issue. And that's not to say that everyone is diagnosable, but I think most of us are really sick with a degree of cognitive distortions about ourselves, about our expectations of the world, about who we're supposed to be, about who we're not supposed to be. And I think that that we're so driven by that internal noise that we end up making a lot of uh, fear-based or shame-based choices that never goes well. So yeah, I, I really, I really do think that's that's pretty rampant. Hmm. And so besides, so besides social media, because I, I see that, you know, like in women that I work with and, and obviously <laughs> social media is such a huge factor, but maybe one of the highest factors, right? Like, oh my God, like Facebook was down, I think last week for... Oh, and, right. And everyone lost it, right? <laughs> yeah. And I, I, so I don't get, you know, I didn't get excited or whatever when like, world news are happening. I don't follow the news, but when Facebook was down, for me, this was the most exciting thing ever. Not only because I don't scroll Facebook and, you know, Instagram, but now Facebook owns everything, if, if you really think about this. But I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. What are people going to do? You know, and I, and I had this thought, I, I had this thought of posting on Facebook that Facebook's not working. And I'm like, oh shit. I can't really do that because Facebook's now like it's crazy, right? Like our lives are so, when you really think about this, are so, you know, ingrained in social media, sharing and posting. And it's like, you can't imagine how would it be to not have it anymore, you know? Yeah, and, I get yeah, it. It's, it's amazing. And so tell me a little bit like, so besides social media and, you know, when I work with women, I tell them the first thing they need to do is stop scrolling and stop you know, looking at the news and all of that. But besides social media, so what, what's happening uh, today? Social media is a big part of it, but what else is happening? Like fear-based decisions, shame-based decisions. Is this a generational thing? Is it technology? Like what's happening? Well, we're looking at a big transition and, and boy, I'm about to speak um, more globally than I'm used to speaking here. So I, I'm, I might put my foot in my mouth in some way, but I think we're looking at a big transition and a big paradigm shift to youth and, and what youth is asking for, that the, um, that the values are shifting and the values are changing. And if, I, if we look at, first of all, American politics, those values are not yet reflected in our Senate and Congress and they're about to be, you know, they're not yet. They're about to be, but um, but that Senate and Congress really haven't relinquished the the kind of control of that they, they they're under the impression that they're in control, when in fact um, there's a, a huge a huge uprising going on of uh, of people shifting their priorities and taking a look at things from a, a really different perspective. But I I, I think the uh, gotcha, again I'm trying to speak very generally here because I'm. I'm not super political here. I'm, I can speak more socially. But I, I think anytime we're taking a look at the, po- the prospect of change on that scale, that there's going to be fear. There's going to be resistance. There are going to be um, people clinging to old ways and old habits and old identities and um, making old demands of themselves that no longer fit the current zeitgeist. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we live... It depends how you look at it, right? Like a lot of people I know out there and I I don't follow social media, but sometimes I get a glimpse and especially women sharing that we live in scary times, you know, especially Mm -hmm. if you're in the US and for the last couple of years and whatever, you know, I live in Australia, so we just had that massacre in New Zealand. Right. It was just insane. 
So it, it might seem, or it seems actually, that we live in really scary times. A lot of people don't know what the hell to do with it. You know, you, you put on top of that all the social media pressure and whatever's going on in the world, all the, you know, standards we have to adhere to, especially as women. And it can seem like, you know, the world is crumbling down. I don't have that perspective <laughs> for some reason. And I know, no, I know exactly what the reason is because I don't scroll. I'm not on, I mean, I am on social media. I'm just sharing my stuff, but I don't scroll. I don't watch the news. I go deep inside. I do embodiment and I feel safe and secure in my own body. And I'm very self-aware. And I think that's the solution basically uh, to, 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 to stay mentally healthy and on your own path. Not being I fully threatened. agree with you. I, I really admire that. And that, that's it. Like the, the ability to just be kind of content in your own world. And that's not to say that we don't, that, that activism isn't important or communication and connection isn't important. Of course it is. Of course it is. But it becomes a point where the obsession of, of other is so great. The obsession of, of how we are perceived by others is so great that it really ends up creating just more suffering. Hi, girlfriends. So sorry to interrupt this awesome episode on Girl Skill, but I quickly wanted to jump in and tell you about Magellan TV, who's the sponsor of Girl Skill Podcast. And I'm highly, highly excited to be recommending them. And if you know me, you know that I would never recommend something that I wouldn't use myself or I wouldn't like. So let me tell you about them. Magellan TV is a new type of documentary streaming provider determined to bring you the finest documentaries from around the globe. It's actually built by documentary filmmakers. Me and my husband have signed up for a trial and we've already watched a couple of documentaries like he really loved the one on North Korea and like cyber attacks and all of that. Magellan actually has the playlist on women in history, breaking barriers. And so I watched a documentary on Nadia Comaneci, who was a Romanian Olympian medalist. I watched the series on Ekaterina the Great and many more and I really love it. And, you know, if you're looking for an alternative to Netflix, because sometimes I do, I'm like so tired of all these silly TV shows or sometimes I can't find any Thing. I mean, this is a great, great alternative while you watch something, but you also learn a lot. So the documentaries on Magellan TV can be watched anytime, anywhere. You know, they're streamed without interruptions, meaning no ads. They're compatible with iOS and Android devices and all of that. They offer documentary movies and series and exclusive playlists and genres include history, science, space, nature, and more. So highly recommend you go check it out. And they actually are offering an exclusive two-month trial for free free to anyone who's interested at MagellanTV.com slash GirlSkills. So it's M-A-G-E-L-L-A-N-TV.com slash GirlSkills. And the link is on the show notes already. So go ahead, check it out, sign up for a free trial for two months. There's nothing to lose, everything to gain, you know, watching documentaries, learning a lot. All right, now back to the episode. So in your own experience, Molly, and I know that you're you're careful as a as a good coach with integrity. You're careful of generalizing things, right? Like talking about the world and this is how things are. Because uh, I'm I'm really trying to, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I really appreciate, but it's still your own opinion, which which is valid. You know, I think we all are grown ups here and understand that your experience is your experience, and you don't need to be Molly on this podcast. You don't need to be inclusive of everyone. Like that's okay. Got it. I, I get that. I also want to make sure I can actually back up any opinions I have. And I'm sure that there are, you know, there are opinions I can pull out that I realize I don't have a fact to support. And uh, I, I just want to be a little bit responsible about that. Yeah. So let's get maybe, let's get more specific. Uh, tell us about your clients um, and like who are the clients that are coming to you and what are their main issues that you're seeing? 
Sure. Um, you know, most of the people I work with are professionals, that they're, they're in the world, that they're working, that they're high functioning, but they're dealing with uh, some degree of either compulsive behavior or really unhelpful behavioral patterns or relational patterns. And whether that's just that they have, uh, they may not have an eating disorder or something that fits diagnostic criteria for an eating disorder. They may just have disordered eating. But it's really not a matter of how bad the symptoms are. It's really, it's much more a matter of how much real estate is this taking up in your brain? How much, how much are you suffering from it? Um, you know, it doesn't matter how many times a week you're binging, how much are you suffering from that the one time a week you're binging? So I, I end up having a lot of conversations with clients who are um, in the process of dealing with some sort of coping skill that's just not serving them and that's hard to put down. Um, and those aren't, aren't always massively self-destructive. You know, I'm not talking about um, professionals who are shooting heroin on the weekends for fun, although God, I've, I've certainly... Heroin addicts are my favorite people. I, I married one of them. He's incredible and he's a therapist and now an uh, incredible man. But you know, we're, we're really looking at people who uh, struggle with incredibly negative self-talk or um, thought patterns or, or uh, I have clients who are just repeatedly getting into the wrong relationships and they, they know why they can see it happening, but that they, they can't quite engage the skill set that they, that they need to engage in order to make a different choice because that's terrifying. My work with them is often about being with that fear, being with the shame that's created whatever cognitive distortion that's uh, driving that pattern, um, being able to dismantle that and then risk being in the unknown of, okay, if you're not going to do that pattern, what are you going to do? Mm, yeah. Okay. So tell me, wh- what have you found? What are some of the, because I'm assuming like I'm dealing with, because you asked me like, what's your, I feel like everybody has an addiction these days, especially oh, women, sure, yeah. to food, yeah. you know, it's either mm-hmm. food or binging on something or whatever. My issue has always been for more than 10 years now, adult acne. And I figured out that it is related to food. And as soon as I eat a piece of chocolate, that's it. My face is, you know, full of acne. Not full, but I have a couple of inflammations on my face. And I'm still dealing with that. And the the worst thing is like, I was pregnant. I couldn't tackle it. Now I'm breastfeeding. I couldn't tackle it. I'm sure after that, there's something else that's going to happen. You know, that there will be. Yes. It will never, it will never, there is no right time for this. Oh God. So tell us like, what, what are some of the reasons that you feel that we are dealing with all this? Well, besides, you know, so social media is a big, do you find that a lot of us deal with this so we can, so I'll share my own experience with my own clients. It feels like First of all, we, I mean, I'm curious what you have to say, because I'm talking from the point of embodiment, feminine embodiment that I do. So what happens is we feel the shame. And I love that you said you are working with clients where you teach them or lead them or guide them into being with the shame, being with all these quote unquote negative emotions that we don't want to feel. And so what I do with embodiment, I actually, with my clients, I sit in those feelings and once I sit, we sit with those feelings in our bodies because there's a lot of frozen tension, these feelings get liberated. And so instead of like a lot of women are walking today through the world, just being numb, being numb or being actually on fire and angry. And that's all because of it's all bottled up. And as you said, like the external vo- volume on the no- noise is turned up and we can't hear ourselves anymore. We don't know who we are, blah, blah. So is that kind of the work you do as well? It's not dissimilar, not at all. A lot of this work is, is about 
how are you, how are you dealing? What's, how are you dealing with this particular feeling? And I think m- many of us don't know how to sit with anxiety, how to sit with shame, how to sit with those kind of feelings. Or we have expectations that we're supposed to sit with them with the hope that they are going to then vanish or that, you know, you use the word liberation, that being liberated means we're not going to have them anymore. And I, boy, I think that's a dangerous thing to set up because I, I, that's certainly not been my experience. I, you know, if I take a look at my own shame, you know, I, I certainly still have my own shame. The difference is it doesn't have me. And that's a huge distinction. We have this expectation that if I take these right steps, if I do this program, if I drink this weight loss shake, if I, whatever, do this retreat or work with this shaman, I'm going to be free of my shame. No. Let's be in relationship with your shame. Let's have a conversation with it. Let's invite it over for dinner. Let's figure out how to be friends with this thing because trying to amputate it is certainly not going to be effective, but it's here. It's here. How are we going to work with it? How are we going to include it? And I think you know what I see a lot with clients over time is that their conversation with the shame shifts from something that they, they absolutely can't be with and have to avoid to something that they recognize is here is temporary and is going to shift out of first position into something else and, and won't be in front of their face permanently. But the relationship to impermanence has become, has become really lost. And that's a, a big part of my work with my clients is to reintroduce them to that idea. Feelings are temporary. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something in, in Buddhism that also is teaching us, right? It's like absolutely sitting yeah. there in meditation and watching it. And, and that's, I mean, that's it, right? It's, <laughs> it's, first of all, accepting and understanding that feelings come and go. As you said, it's all impermanent. But it, it's the hardest thing in the world to be like, that's it. We don't know. And, and it's, it's because it's, it's very uncomfortable and it's hard to be, to sit with those uncomfortable feelings, to, to sit with the shame and how to, because you don't want to feel it. Like you don't want to be in it and you don't know for how long you're going to be there. You don't know what's, what's waiting for you on the other side. And, and even though I do it and I have a, you know, an embodiment practice that really helps me move this through my body. I'm curious work with clients, but I found that embodiment is really the key and it's helped me a lot. It's still really hard. I st- and, and that's what you said. It's never going to go away. So like the, the quick fix that sometimes I'm using with a piece of chocolate or whatever to numb these feelings, to not feel it, you know, the thing is that it's, yeah, we, there's no fix and <laughs> there's no like permanent fix to it. You can't, you know, go and lose those pounds or go and, you know, even if I get rid of acne, you know, it's, it's never going to go away in that sense. So it's like, a, as you said, the relation, I love when you say you have to create the relationship with it. It's like a friend. And I know that, um, who was it? Elizabeth Gilbert, when I read her big magic book, it's like when she talks about that fear, the creativity, you know, that fear, that voice, internal voice, that's always telling you, you're not good enough. So it's not getting rid of it completely or shutting that down because, and I was really surprised that, you know, I've, in, I've interviewed a lot of people and I read a lot of successful people's stories. And it's really interesting how even the most successful people in the world, they still have the fear and they oh, still yeah, have the yeah. shame. And then we're like surprised of, oh, wait, really? You feel that too? That's weird. Yeah. Well, that's because, yeah. we're, we can have that shame and not take direction from it. We can be in conversation with that shame and not believe everything that it's saying. And, and that's, that's really the big principle of, of cognitive behavioral therapy is how are we engaging with our thoughts? Do we have to believe everything we think? Do we have to take action from shame or from fear? 
can we wait it out until there's another part of ourselves, a more adult uh, or, or healthy part of ourselves that has the mic again and um, is able to speak to us a little bit more clearly? So there, there's a lot at play here from everything from we shouldn't have shame and, and there's something wrong with me that I have shame to, okay, I have shame, but it's, 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 it's like directing my life single-handedly. That These are all elements to unpack in, um, in this work. Mm. So when we talk about shame, and I know, you know, you probably are a big fan of Brene Brown, obviously, (laughs) you know, coined this term kind of and described it in all of us. But for everyone listening, shame is like, I feel we kind of understand it, but we don't necessarily, because a lot of people might think that, oh, I don't feel shame, you know? What do you mean when you say shame? And for everyone listening, so they can really truly deeply understand because all of us have it at some... I mean, all of us have it, right? Because we're human. So what is shame and what are the reasons behind it? So why do we feel shame and where is it coming from? I think the easiest way to describe shame is, is to initially link it to guilt, which is regret about some sort of condition or some sort of behavior. The difference being that guilt is about what we've done and shame is about who we are. The message of guilt is, I have made a mistake. The message of shame is I am a mistake. And that plays into our relationship with identity, who we think we are, who we, who we refuse to be, what parts of ourselves we're going to absolutely deny exist and which parts we're going to promote. All with the idea, shame, shame really comes from an idea that here's what we have to be and here are the things we cannot be. This refusal to accept and integrate parts of ourselves that are purely human, um, whether that's rage or gluttony or lust or contempt or, or fear, that all of those are, are things which I think many people will say, let's get these things off our plate. But in fact, those are incredible tools from us. We want access to all of those things. We want access and, and permission to be everything that uh, rage can be, if, it's, if we're operating from shame-driven rage, it's going to be destructive. But there's a way to access rage from a creative place that can be really motivating and expressive. That something, something gosh, I, if you, you look at something like um, gluttony, for example, and it's, it's not a word that I, I don't even know where that word is coming from right now. It's not one that I tend to use often, but the sense of more, I need more, I can't get enough. And that's certainly something I experienced in the, um, in the depths of my bulimia. And it's a feeling that a lot of my clients encounter, those who are dealing with compulsive eating issues. That, that sense of, of gluttony is something that many people feel shame about and have the sense of, oh, I, I shouldn't have this. This is a terrible part of myself. This is a, this is a, a, a dark and consuming, ugly part of myself. But that gluttony is one of the things that also allows us to access drive and, and the ability to, to generate for ourselves and the ability to, um, to gather and bring in and provide that that is certainly something we want access to. But if we've decided that it's shameful and we're cut off from it, we also don't get the benefits of things that we get from gluttony and rage and, and these other colorful parts. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. I mean, obviously, like, I love what you're saying. You know, I'm having my own revelations. It's like, I am a mistake, right? Like, that's disassociating yourself from things that you are doing, things that you're thinking, what is happening around the world. It's really, it really comes back to this, like, meditative state, like, I am not my thoughts. I'm not my behaviors. And, and that's that's the key here. But it's obviously the hardest thing to do. But I'm thinking, Molly, like, 
Are you saying that people, because we're human, we are dealing with shame? I think shame is, oh, well, if you look at, if you look at little kids, little kids have freedom to be anything. They're not operating with shame until they're, until they're interacted with in a way that induces shame, until they get the message, that's not okay. That's not okay. You are not okay as you are. You know, if you say something to a kid like, uh, you know, don't, don't cross your eyes, they're going to stay that way. Well, to a kid, they'd be delighted like that. They don't mind looking silly. But for an adult, they can't look silly. That, that's stupid. They, they lose credibility. They lose money. They lose, oh, you know, whatever it happens to be. So in tiny ways, we learn shame. Shame is a, is a survival skill in a way. It tells us what we need to be and who we need to be to make sure we are not rejected and we're not pushed away from the campfire and out into the cold. So I don't, I don't necessarily believe that we come in with shame. I think some of, them, some of us come in brokenhearted. I think that's a different element. But I, I believe that shame is, a, uh, shame is taught. Yeah. And, you know, having a child really puts things into perspective because like this, you know, every morning when I wake up, well, the baby wakes up by herself and then I go to her and she just looks at me and smiles. And she's at this age, obviously three months, like whatever. She's just like, she's just understanding who she is and why she's Mm -hmm. here, you know? (laughs) Hell, you're just understanding who she is and why she's here. I'm still understanding why I'm here, you know, and who I am. (laughs) (laughs) So, but you're right. It's like, what I'm thinking is like, she has no filter right now. And as she's growing up, you know, by the time she's probably one or two, she's just learning the social behaviors and what's expected of her and what does mommy and daddy want from her and who are her friends and society. And then, you know, and it's all these layers that a child puts on themselves. And of course, depending on what country they're growing up in, you know, because different cultures and everything, and that that all these layers are becoming these filters. And then that's how we go through life. We put on these, you know, limiting beliefs or patterns or whatever. And then like, we got to deal with all of this yeah, <laughs> in our adult life. And it really depends on, um, you know, our personality and how. Yeah. So I'm just thinking as a parent, how do I... Well, I'm still dealing with it myself, obviously. No, no, and that's fair. And I I knew this question was coming. And as you were about to ask it, I was thinking, oh, damn, I, I, this is where, you know, you need to connect this episode to uh, an episode where you're discussing this with a, a parenting expert, because I'm, I, I do a really killer job at untangling other people's shame and, and helping dismantle the, the constructs that have created them for so long and held them in place. Mm-hmm. When it comes to parenting, the, the process of not creating shame or creating as little shame as possible, or just creating healthy shame... That I can't speak intelligently on. Um, my husband and I joke that uh, you know when we have a kid, we're not saving for college; we're saving for treatment, because inevitably we're going to have a, a lovely little drug addict, or bulimic, or something that you know. And, and we're going to do our best, but there's no doubt that we're going to end up instilling things that we never meant to instill in our kids. So I would hate to try and sound smart and try and come up with some you know some epic parenting quote of here's now not to instill shame quote molly bernie but molly actually can't uh doesn't know shit about parenting yet yeah and i love what you're saying because i was listening to this uh, parenting russian it's a russian episode and somebody said there that i love they said if you have parents save for therapy so basically you know, everybody has, if you have a, a set of parents, uh-huh. you need uh-huh. to save money for therapy because, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, and yeah. it's like, but at the same time as a parent, that's another guilt 
and shame that we 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 carry with us like how yeah that's the eternal question and i will definitely speak to a parenting expert and thanks for being so honest with me but i also think you know we we have to excuse ourselves from being perfect right you know and there's there's a concept in i was just discussing this with uh, a friend of mine yesterday who's um just wrestling with uh, her own OCD. She happens to be a brilliant OCD therapist, but she also wrestles with some of her OCD. And she was talking about parenting and struggling with the idea of what if, what if I mess up my kid? And I reminded her, and this is something we actually remind each other, she reminds me too, of uh, this concept from way back in the day from our master's program in clinical psych, the concept of the good enough mother. The idea of being, you don't have to be perfect that your best is most likely going to be good enough. And then you, you trust the human soul that you're raising to be able to figure out the rest on their own and find the right guides to untangle any snags along the way. But good enough is good enough. Well, what I found also is, so with my embodiment work, you know, what I, one answer that I found within myself and I'm going to try to instill in my daughter, and I think about it more and more, is whenever she's feeling you know, because I can't protect her from heartbreak, from feeling whatever she's feeling, right? Like the whole human spectrum. But whenever she's feeling those quote-unquote negative emotions, I can try and teach her or work with her just like I am with my clients to actually sit with it. You know, like you said, sit with it and create a relationship. So you're feeling that. I understand. You know, tell me more about this. Let's sit with it. It's okay. Like not patching this and not numbing it and saying, you should not be feeling that. Try and go and try and distract yourself, you know, but really being with it. And that's what right, I'm trying right. to do with, with clients and, you know, an embodiment work. Like we're, let's feel it through the body, for example. Where does it sit? How can we move the body? Let's try and liberate it. And what I've started doing with my girlfriends automatically because I'm doing this work, every time they share something with me, what I started doing naturally is just saying, you know what? It's absolutely normal what you're feeling. And even mm-hmm, though, mm-hmm. Yeah, lead with that. Yeah. And they're like, oh, okay. And when you, and that's something I learned from my own coach. When you hear that, and even though it might not be true, which is, which, which is actually true because everything we feel, the whole spectrum is normal. Like everybody's dealing with their own shit, right? And when they feel that, they're like, oh yeah, you know, it's normal. And then- Well, what you're doing to yeah. your, for, for them, what you're doing then is giving your friend permission which is all any of us really want. Can we just have permission to be enough as we are and not be rejected for that? Just have permission. But you, you did remind me of something. I, I have a, a, a thought that maybe could translate to the parenting thing. I was thinking about one of the ways in which I, I, I do work with my clients on this stuff. And some of it's by modeling. I don't get in deep into the depths of the, my own stuff that I'm working on, but I'll be forthcoming if I'm struggling with something or I, I, there's a, a client with whom I end up telling a lot of stories. I call them the Molly parables of this one time when I did X, Y, and Z, and then I learned this. You know, and it, it, it's, it's a, a little bit cheesy, and, um, but I find if I mock myself about it, it's uh, not too bad. But if I, if I can be forthcoming about what I'm dealing with and, and the, how human and clumsy I am with the process of... Um, I think I, I, one of the things I um, talked about recently was um, that when, when my husband and I fight, there are times when he's ready to make up and I'm not, and I know we need to, but I'm not done being shitty about it yet. And I have to tell him, I know we need to heal this, but I, I need to sulk. I need time. I need to sulk. And I really need to feel sorry for myself and I'm not done. I'll let you know when I'm done. 
and and to have, like to let my that uglier part of uh, uglier and I'm using that in quotes that part of myself be seen and and lead with that and promote that so that there first of all so that there isn't shame about it between myself and my husband and I have to have a sense of humor about it that you know 34 year old Molly needs to sulk a little bit longer and and be right but uh, but also in sharing that with clients to really model what being in relationship with your shame looks like. And I, I think that translates to parenting. I certainly know it does if you're parenting someone with an eating disorder, that modeling normal eating habits, healthy eating habits is really important. And thus, you know, modeling your relationship to shame and your relationship to your own emotional process has also got to be really important for, for parenting. Yeah, absolutely. And what they say, you know, just take care of yourself. Like now I'm doing all these moms groups and parenting groups and whatever. And what I'm realizing is the message, and I found it for myself so true. It's like, just make sure you're okay, you're happy, and everything will take care of itself. Like you don't need to make up a special, you know, like every day, am I, how am I... You know, how am I parenting? How is my child? Whatever. Just take care right, of yourself, right. of your own. <laughs> That's a way to create a really anxious child is to, yeah, to analyze exactly. your parenting daily. Yeah. But just, just take care of yourself. Do your own practices. You know, create a relationship with your own shame, whatever. And your child will take care of itself if they see how you're doing it. Because all they do is model, right? Especially, I mean, until they're living with us. So that's that's great. Thanks for mentioning this. So Molly, I really want to talk about, and we're coming towards the end of the interview, but I really want to talk about, you know, your work with clients. So somebody listening and all of us, all of us need this, right? <laughs> like that's that's the key, the liberation. I need this. Yeah. yeah. So how do we, so, you know, if, if somebody is having an eating disorder or I, I love this when you said eating disorder or disordered eating, that really stuck with me. Okay. Let me ask you this. What's the difference? Well, an eating disorder would be something that meets diagnostic criteria for bulimia or anorexia or uh, binge eating disorder or even uh, eating disorder not otherwise specified. So something that, that fits within the DSM uh, under, under that criteria. But disordered eating is really more of the, the rampant cultural message about our relationship to food and our bodies. That disordered eating is any any relationship to food that's causing you stress, anxiety, something that that you're finding takes up way too much space in your brain, um, or or is is more important than it needs to be. Whether that's about restricting food, or too much food, or too much of the right food, or too much of the wrong food, there's a there's an appropriate percentage for for food to take up in our lives, and not that we shouldn't enjoy it or plan it or think about it. But there's a point at which it crosses a line and, and creates suffering. And any any food relationship that creates suffering, I would I would call disordered eating. So just to be clear, that's not a that's not a, a, a diagnosis. That's more of a cultural understanding. Okay, so so let's let's get into this. Like for everybody listening who's dealing with something, which I'm so most of us, I'm dealing with it as well. So what do we do about this? Okay, so so there's a problem. Like I'll let's just take my case and let's pretend I'm your client. So I'm coming to you, Molly, and saying, Molly. I don't know what the hell's going on in my body, but I know that every time I eat a chocolate, piece of chocolate, like I know it's sugar, I get inflammation, but like on my skin. And I don't have the discipline, like this is true. I don't have the discipline to follow through and not do that. Like I'm, I'm going for sugar a lot of the times and that's causing acne and that's causing suffering. I look in the mirror every morning and I'm like, gosh, like, what is this? And then that creates the whole anxiety and, and it's, it's a cycle, you know, it's right, a vicious right. cycle that I can get out of for like years. Absolutely. So, Molly, help me. What do I sure. do? 
Yeah, you got it. And a lot of this is going to sound a lot more cut and dry than it is, that there are things that sound like, hey, that's simple, but not easy. So first of all, am I, am I clear in assuming that the acne is not worth the chocolate? Have you made that distinction? Hmm. Is the acne worth the chocolate? It might be. In fact, there are some days that it might be. Yeah. So that's what I say. In general, I think like cognitively in my mind, when I think rational and logical, of course, it's not worth the chocolate. Like having great skin is worth not, not going for the sugar. But okay. sometimes I bypass that because the sure. desire to have sugar is stronger than the mm-hmm. desire of having you know, healthy skin. Of course. And, and so I, I want to start with, first of all, there's nothing wrong if your answer was, you know what, it, it is worth it. That there's nothing empirically more valuable about healthy, healthy skin than chocolate. That someone could easily say, yeah, it's, it's totally worth it to me. And there's no problem. The only problem is that you're saying, here's the behavior and it's not worth the consequences. So th- the first question I would, I would say is when you go, when you're in that moment of do I, don't I, and you decide, yeah, I'm going to fucking go for it. I'm going for the chocolate. What part of you is making that decision? So I've actually identified this because I've been, I've been working with this issue for a long time. So I know that when I go for the chocolate, it's either one, I am bored, two, I'm feeling some negative feelings. So I think it's, it's one of the two these days. Like I know and I catch myself in the moment. So I think I'm, I may be a little bit advanced in this journey. So is in, I, I, I can catch I, I myself. I totally get what you're saying. So, the, so the, you're, t- you're describing two feelings that come up. Um, I want to bring you back around to the, the phrasing and that question, which is which part of yourself is making that decision? What would you label the part of yourself that decides I'm going for it? The part that needs soothing, the part that needs to get out of the boredom or the negative emotions. Got it. Okay. So the part that needs soothing, the part that needs some relief. How old is that part that needs soothing? Oh my God. As old as me. <laughs> 30, but probably less. Yeah. So it's, it's maybe 15, maybe. I don't, I, I don't, is that a question like how old? It, no, it's, it, it's a real question. Yeah. How, how old is that voice that says, I need soothing? This is what I need. 15 years. 15. Got it. Do you remember yourself at 15? Yes. I was in the very troubled, you know, teenage years. Yeah. Uh huh. Are you comfortable taking direction from a 15 year old? <laughs> That's a weird question. Uh, <laughs> whoa, Molly. Nobody's ever asked. Uh, am I comfortable? Is that a, I'm like, is that a trick question? How am I? No, saying? no, no. It's, it's a genuine question. The answer might be yes, I'm comfortable with it. No, but it I'm also not. might be no, no, no. Okay, so what part of yourself would you rather be taking direction from in that moment? For my adult self, for my adult healthy self. From your adult healthy self. Okay, okay. And what would her voice sound like in the moment? <sighs> her voice would sound like Anna. I know this is not comfortable. What you're feeling. But just sit with it, merge with it. It's gonna pass. You don't need to patch it up. You don't need to numb yourself. Okay. So you're reminding yourself like, Hey, this is going to pass. This is, it's uncomfortable, but it's not a problem with a capital P that it's not something that needs solving. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. So it sounds like the adult self is reminding the 15 year old of impermanence here. Like Mm -hmm. ride this out. 
you know, the, the peak of most cravings, and I actually, I, I should double check my research on this. this. I'm just repeating something now that, um, that a, a mentor of mine told me years ago, and I, I use it because it makes a lot of sense, but I, I need to double check the, the fact here. Um, but I'm told the peak of most cravings is about 90 seconds. Mm. It'll come in waves like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, when I check that out for myself, it's mostly true. There are exceptions, but it's mostly true. So, and this is granted a huge oversimplification of this process. I'm condensing this into one, one brief uh, conversation for the sake of this podcast. But we're really talking about the adult self saying to the 15-year-old self, can you hold on for 90 seconds? <laughs> Again, I'm really oversimplifying this. but No, but th- it's really helpful. This is a microcosm for, for what's going on globally. And there are, there are other areas in which of, of your world in, in which you are taking direction from the 15-year-old and the 20-year-old and the 7-year-old and the 30-year-old. And you know, that there, are, there are a lot of parts of ourselves that, that all are, are taking the mic and giving us direction at any given point. And our job is to, to have some critical thinking around that. Is this a default choice or, is, or, excuse me, is this a default or is this a choice? Which is why I asked you, is the chocolate worth it? There's nothing wrong with the, having the chocolate if you know that that's a choice and you're choosing the consequences as well as the chocolate. But if we're missing the perspective, which is the fact that this craving passes and you know tomorrow I will regret it, then, then we have to get curious about which part of ourselves needs to step in and redirect. Wow, that's really interesting. Well, I have two thoughts here. One is that 90 seconds is actually a very short time. And you know what? I don't even care if it's true or not. It's just this idea, the thought, the thought that it will be just 90 seconds and I have to hold on. And in reality, it does pass. Even if I were to tell you that it's a 10-minute craving, which I'll tell you is a long fucking craving, but even if it's 10 minutes, can you put 10 minutes between that impulse and the action? Because even just doing that helps rewire the brain. We're really just talking about rewiring neuropathways here. And you're so used to having you, I one, we are, so we're used to having the impulse followed by doing the compulsion, impulse, compulsion, impulse, compulsion, that if we can do impulse, wait, and then either compulsion or not compulsion, then we've introduced the idea of choice. And that, that changes the brain. So even if you end up having the chocolate after waiting, you're still in the process of derailing that neuropathway from the groove it's been in for a long, long time of, I feel the instinct, got to have the chocolate. Yeah, because wow. Yeah, this is transformational. Now I understand this and it's it, and I see why you're saying clinical coaching because it's like a, it's like a process, you know? There there's right, steps right. to it and it's decision making. And I know what you, exactly what you're saying because in my case and because I've been dealing for this with this a while, I've come to the point where I feel the impulse like sugar I need it. I need it now. And then the, and then it's kind of like I start wrestling with myself. Do I do it or not? Do I do I do it or not? You know, is it worth it? Is it not? so? It's a, like an internal conflict and a dialogue starts happening. Right. And and, and here's the, here's so I've got a question for you. Have you ever argued with a fifteen year old? Well, it's pretty much arguing with a fifteen year old. Yeah. Well, you you're, mean yeah, really, you're going to you're going to it's exactly like that, that they're going to make arguments that are kind of irrational, but you're kind of buying them. You're going to get hooked on content. You're going to get emotional. And then suddenly you are not an adult having a conversation with a 15-year-old. You are a 15-year-old having a conversation with a 15-year-old and fuck it, let's eat some chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. 
So from and just to be clear, place, I'm all for chocolate. I have no, you know, nothing against chocolate. It's all about, or sugar or anything. It's just about our relationship to these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so from that place, there's only two choices. Either you eat it or not. And so in some cases, I go for it because the 15-year-old in that particular situation is stronger. And so I bet like, I have the debate. I have the argument. I fuck it. Yeah, let's just do it. Right, right. In some cases... I don't go for it. And I'm at this point where it actually happens rarely, to be honest with you. Like I don't have chocolate in the house. I've managed to... And when I do, what I what also is really helpful, I remove the suffering. I just accept it. And I'm like, that's what's going to happen. And I accept the consequence. And what, what you shared with me, something that was an aha moment, is in the difference between a teenager, my 15-year-old self, and the adult. The adult is able to accept the consequence, to say... I'm going to do this, but then this is going to happen. And so I'm getting more comfortable with that, with this process happening. Like, okay, craving. That's what makes it a choice rather than a default, that you have some intelligence behind it rather than just the instinct and the impulse. That if the adult is, the adult is choosing it, the adult is also choosing the consequences and therefore is not in self-abuse about it later. That's right. Yeah. So Yep, I'm going to do it. I'm going to deal with the acne later and then I'm going to move on. And there's no story, self-punishing, you know, whatever. Or shame. You know, you you really disengage from the shame. But here's the thing. You need that 15-year-old part of yourself sometimes. That is not something to amputate. That's not a voice to ignore. That there are times when that impulsivity serves us. That allows us to be impulsive and organic and creative. That we want access to that sometimes. We just don't want that owning us. And so building a relationship with it, very different than shutting it off. Yes. Okay. I understand that. But Molly, how do I deal with... So I've got to that point, but then I know that to get healthy skin without acne, I need to be doing this, meaning not eating chocolate. I need to have the discipline to do it for a while, for like at least three months, let's say. So how do I do that? Like, because, you know, if I want healthy skin, I can't be just once a week, you know, allowing myself to eat the chocolate and being okay with it because that's not leading to healthy skin. Do you well, know what I mean? A lot of, there are a lot of things at work here. And some of them, uh, some of them would, would really boil down to something as simple as, what if you don't have perfect healthy skin? Mm. <laughs> I know you don't like that answer, but, and that's not to say that you're not capable of, of discipline because you probably are. But before we even go down that road of seeing if you are capable of that, let's get comfortable with the possibility that you might not be. We don't know what you have yet. And we got to deal with whatever feelings come up as a result of that, whatever shame comes up as a result of that, that you can't adhere to this perfectly enough to get the result that you demand. Yeah. And that's not to say that you can't. We don't know if you can. And that, that's certainly a conversation to have. And that, you know, the answer to that is you do it one day at a time and you reassess your relationship to this as compassionately as possible one day at a time. And trying to stay, it's like you know, trying to stay sober one day at a time. You just string together as many days as you can. And there are going to be days where it's imperfect. But ultimately, in order even to do that, it, there's, a, there's a, a grieving process of... Uh, grieving the the lack of chocolate for one, and second of all, grieving the fantasy that I'm going to be someone who has perfect skin and perfect discipline. Does that work the same way? Because you're just talking about, and I'm like, because you mentioned alcohol, right? Like sober, and I'm realizing it's the same freaking thing if you were recovering from addiction, right? In your case, 
because your, your body has an allergy to the chocolate, then yes. Now, if we're dealing with an eating disorder, then that's about fear of chocolate. It's not about actually what the chocolate is, is doing to you. It's about uh, either the, the fear of chocolate because of it's causing you to gain weight or will cause you to gain weight or fear that if I have chocolate, I won't be able to stop or whatever. It's, it, chocolate's a very powerful thing, as you can yes. see. Um, but in, in that case, we're not looking at that as an addictive substance that we can no longer have from an eating disorder paradigm. That's just about what's our relationship to chocolate like. And in this case, you're talking about it as though it's an allergy or something your body does not process well. And therefore, then we do have to look at that as a substance, unlike an eating disorder. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. So, so it's very similar to, because I've been smoking for about 15 years as well, like cigarettes and I quit, thanks God, like two years ago. Oh, good for you. Yeah. But it's like, I'm thinking now it is the same thing, actually, whether you're addicted to alcohol or, you know, smoking or I guess whatever substance it's that, it's the thing that you have to deal with every single day because I still have smoking cravings, you know, whenever Absolutely. I see yeah. someone. Those, those neural pathways are ingrained for you. And of course they would be after all these years. But yeah, the thought's going to come up. Yeah. So it's that, wow, this subject is fascinating. It's like my brain hurts thinking about this. I'm like, wow, this is, okay, we got to finish up, Molly. But <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Let's summarize this because this is, this is incredible. So for everyone who is dealing with some sort of a thing, you know, eating disorder or disordered eating or whatever they're dealing with, whoever is listening to this, how would you summarize kind of maybe the steps or what would be the most important message that they need to hear in order to, you know, step on this journey of, of healing? And, and essentially, I feel like most of us would just want to be free from it, right? Like, yeah. 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 Well, our, our, our idea of what is it to be free might have to shift. I'm in recovery from bulimia. So I, sure, I don't throw up anymore, but I, I have noise in my head about my body or my food. And if I was waiting to be free of that noise to consider myself liberated, I'd, I'd be really fucked. I'd be waiting a long time. So I, I, can't, uh, I can't expect that freedom is going to look like exactly what I think it's going to be like, which is why I was asking about the, the skin piece. So... I guess if, if we're looking to summarize this, it's really, you know, what is the thought we're having? Where is that thought born from? And can we go into that thought with compassion and figure out how to, how to build a relationship with it? What is the thought? Where is it coming from? And can we sit with it and build a relationship with it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's where the clinical piece is because often you know, people have they may, that 15-year-old voice might be a really traumatized voice or it might be a seven-year-old voice and it might be furious. In which case, that's a conversation we have to have before we can do the rest of the work that, that you and I did there. So there are often really wounded parts of us that are driving these conversations. And we, we don't want to have those wounded parts because we think they're bad for us or they have nothing to say or they're, they're, they're scary or they're damaged. But in fact, those are exactly the parts that we need to be leaning into and embracing. So we get some healing around this and we have a shot at a different experience. Yeah. And what I'd like to add here is like those parts and the issue that we're dealing with, it's telling us something. Like I know what I'm dealing with. There's a lesson here. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And I'm ready like what's something. the communication of your 15 year old? Is it, is it, you know, fuck you. I'm not doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and, I'm gonna, I want it my way, you know, being curious about what that communication is. That's right. And, and then the, the lesson is like, am I ready to learn it or not? And if I'm not, that's okay. Like the time, the time will come. Or as you said, Maybe it will never come because I don't freaking know if I'm going to fix this, you know, and fix is a very dangerous word. So I have to be okay with it never going away. And then 
what are the next steps from there? <laughs> right. Because fix implies shame. Fix implies brokenness. And, and I, I don't know that that's what's going on here. That's right. Wow. All right, let's take a deep breath from that. Thanks so much, Molly. This was amazing. Uh, thanks for walking me through it. And I really, yeah, started thinking about this differently and a lot of the parts got eliminated. But unfortunately, we have to finish up. It's time for tools and resources on Girl Skill. So Molly, who are some of the people that you're following today on social media or wherever you are following <laughs> them? So I... I'm embarrassed to say, or embarrassed or proud, I don't know. Um, but I don't, I don't actually have any social media. And the reason for that being that my, uh, my propensity and capacity for navel-gazing and, and uh, self-obsession is so great that, um, that it's, it's not worth it to me. If I was to go into the social media land, I, I would just get obsessed and feel bad. That Plenty of studies show that people do not feel better after going through social media for whatever period of time. And, um, you know, I, I keep the people I love close. I'm, I stay current on the news and beyond that, um, anything else that I need is any information that I need. I'll, I'll find. Mm. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about some of the people that you admire and respect maybe in your field or other people's fields. I don't know. What are some names that you really find inspirational? Let's say. Sure. I think Pema Chodron is an absolute hero. Everything, everything that she um, she produces. Who's that again? Pema Chodron. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, she's um, uh, she's a monk um, actually in the, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and uh, she's a, a writer, author, um, does a lot of retreats and workshops. And her her language and her ability to really access the softness of people, the open parts of people, the open wounded parts of people. It's really phenomenal. So uh, her work has been really inspiring. I, I feel like a bit of a cheese ball admitting this, but uh, I'd be lying if I didn't, uh, if I said I didn't have a copy of Eat, Pray, Love that has notes and writing in it and tears on the pages and you know, spaghetti stains somewhere in there, that it's a, a very well-loved dog-eared copy. Because I think Elizabeth Gilbert is uh, really just an incredible voice, incredible voice. Um, and then, of course, one of my my big mentors is a, a coach named Breck Costin, who is in Los Angeles and has been just really influential in in the coaching element of things. Um, that I once I he has sort of, I started working with him prior to getting my um, my master's, but he he really helped me with the uh, the framework of this work and being able to make it accessible to people and the languaging. So, Breck, thank you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. And um, besides the Eat, Pray, Love book, are there any other books that you'd recommend reading? Oh, <laughs> uh, I mean, for, for fun? <laughs> sure. For anything, um, for fun or for, you know, getting to know more about, you know, eating disorders or addictions or whatever you feel like mentioning. Sure. You know, I, this is a little off the wall, but I think um, Anthony Bourdain's memoir, Kitchen Confidential, does a great job illustrating the relationship to shame and and identity and who he wants to be and our relationship to sex and authority and all the thought process that he really does a, a beautiful job of illustrating that in that memoir. So I, again, I, I know it's a little out of the box, but I think it's a, it's a fantastic book. And you know, beyond that, I good poetry, read some good poetry. <laughs> Don't get too involved in self-help stuff. You know, there's, it, it's all most self-help is trying to sell something, but it, it gets better. It doesn't get that much better, but it gets a lot better. But let's stop expecting ourselves to be completely healed. So in that sense, I, well, 
don't look for self-help for, for those purposes. What's your recommendation for good poetry? Oh, Emily Dickinson. Hmm, oh, that's pretty classy. grim, isn't it? <laughs> um, Billy Collins, maybe. E.E. E. Cummings, dear to my heart. Wow, beautiful. All right, Molly, thank you so much. This has been amazing. I'm glad we got to talk today. And for everybody who wants to know you more, get to know you know your work and, and everything about you, where can they find you? Sure. Uh, they can find my website at mbclinicalcoaching.com. MB, clinical coaching. And so for everyone listening, all the links that, uh, you know, to the people in the books and everything and to the great poetry <laughs> Molly has recommended <laughs> are going to be in the show notes. So make sure to check that out. All right, Molly, thank you so much. And we'll keep in touch. Thank you, Anna. All right. Take care. All right, girlfriends, how awesome was that? I'm like still mesmerized with Molly and our discussion. And I think I'll be thinking about this as I go through my day today and through this week. So all of the show notes and all of the links that Molly mentioned to the people and to the books and everything you could find at girlskill.com slash 106. And as usual, if you found this episode valuable, please, please share it with a girlfriend who perhaps is struggling with eating disorder or disordered eating and really needs to hear what Molly has to say, share this episode straight from your podcasting app or send her directly to girlskill.com 106. All right, girlfriends, stay awesome, stay feminine and keep running with the wolves. And I'll see you next week on another amazing episode in Girlskill podcast. Thank you for tuning in to Girlskill. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher to never miss an episode. And never forget that your version of success is uniquely yours to live and experience. Until next time, let's continue redefining female success together. Girlskill.com. Female success redefined. Redefined.